This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. You know what I want? <laughs> I want to talk to Sam. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Real Samson Folk, and you're joining me after the, the culmination of the Raptors season. There's other basketball going on, though. So I thought, who better to talk about other basketball than Evan Gualberto of the Evan Gualberto YouTube channel? He's making great clips over on there. His insights on the game are clearly defined in what he finds. And maybe uh, second most notably, you can find him on this podcast occasionally, like today. And third most notably, but maybe first most notably someday, he's a coach and one who comes to games suited and booted what what's the reason you I, I want to know why why are you dressing like this why are you why are you trying to show everybody up on the court what's the reason well I think that it is a way to so I coach high school basketball and a lot of the boys that I coach you know they're good with wearing sweats and things like that but if I can show a little bit of my dress sense a little bit of how good you can look in a suit when it's fitted and you mix it, you you play with colors a little bit, it lets them know, hey, maybe maybe I should try that. And a lot of the time we, we do. So for when we have away games, we always dress up because, you know, it's like we treat it as going into someone else's house. And so you dress well when you're going to someone else's house. So if you came to my house, what would you wear? I'm... <laughs> well, if I get a minute... If I get some minute basketball swag, shout out to minute basketball. Some of that depends. Depends on the socks. For you, I would build a base from the socks and then go go up from that. Maybe you could do those Tom Brown. Uh, they're like dress shorts because it's Mexico, so it's kind of hot as hell. I don't know if you want to be in a suit either. But regardless, Evan, <laughs> we we've been paying attention to basketball for quite some time in our lives. Me through sports writing, you through coaching, and now coming together to make this podcast for, I guess this is our third episode. I've loved your insights into the game, and I'm going to lean on you for the start of this podcast because obviously, I mean, it's quite frankly, the Miami Heat have kicked some ass. They've done the thing, and I was not confident in them at the start of this playoff run. I did not think they'd beat the Celtics. I thought they'd beat the Pacers. I thought they lose to the Bucks. I am just completely, I, I have no idea what's going on with that team, I guess. I feel like I have a good beat on Jimmy, a good beat on Bam. I missed out on Hero completely. I had no idea his playmaking was this good, his ball control. It's at a pretty high level. But behind all that, orchestrating what's going on is Eric Spolstra, one of your favorite coaches ever, if not your favorite. What do you think's going on with him? What decisions is he making that just, pop off the page to you well the thing about spo is preparation is everything right from his background we all know about his back well if you don't know about his background he comes from like the video room and so he's used to breaking things down seeing every little thing paying attention to every little thing and so what's gone on here is just like with the last celtic series is it's a chess match it's a it's a back and forth it's Spo is turning small advantages into as big of an advantage as he can get them. And so I think one of the best ways to illustrate that is there's a thing happening on the Heat sidelines out of bounds plays. In game one, the Heat attacked attack the Celtics on their sidelines out of bounds plays by having whoever Kemba is guarding sets set screens for the inbounder, which is more often than not Jimmy Butler. In game one, Celtic switch, Kemba onto Jimmy. Jimmy goes right to the block, posts up, heat advantage. I think it was a post score or a kick out. When they didn't switch that, I'm specifically thinking of a time with Jay Crowder 
setting the screen. Kemba was, go- Kemba was on Jay Crowder. Crowder sets the back screen. I believe it was Tatum and Kemba. They both go to Jimmy because they don't want a Jimmy post up. Bam has the ball up top. Crowder, who just set the screen, comes up and hits a three. And then game two, Brad makes the adjustment of going to a 2-3 zone against the, their sideline out of bounds plays. And then the progressions since then have been they'll show zone and then switch to man after the first or second pass. And so it's just there's a there's a back and forth there where we saw in game four they had a very simple but very effective counter where it would be the first pass would go in to bam or not necessarily to bam, but the first pass would go in. The Celtics would be in a zone. Celtic um, Miami kicks the ball out up top to Bam. They get out of their zone and go and match the Celtics match up. And then three of the Miami Heat players clear to the other side of the floor. And Bam goes into a sprinting dribble handoff to one of their wing players. I think once it was Dragic, once it was Butler. Another time I can think of it was, it was Hero. And having that empty ball screen, having a ball screen or a dribble handoff with the one side completely emptied out and the other three players all the way on the other side means there's no help. So Bam can play it however he wants. He can show off his basketball IQ. He can show off his quickness by either handing off or faking the handoff, going straight to the basket, or they'll do the Duncan-Bam special of handoff. Duncan rises into a shot, throws it back to Bam, runs right back off. Bam can roll, whatever. So, you know, Spo has taken advantage of every little thing that there is to take advantage of. I thought it was interesting. Last game, Bam and Duncan did three resets of the handoff in like five seconds. And when you watch that, the willingness to be active doesn't seem like it should be such an advantage in very high leverage basketball games, in games that matter the most, the Eastern Conference Finals. You shouldn't be able to try harder than the other team. But the Heat embodied in seemingly every player on the floor is that motion from Bam Adebayo to Jimmy Butler. As you said, like Jimmy Butler being able to cut through the paint and shift the defense and also being able to playmake at times at any at any point of the floor is huge. And in late in games, they'll use him in the post. We saw Harrow on that cut last night where, you know, Jimmy had that that great no-look pass. Bam, also super rapid. Hero is constantly moving off ball. Dragic is rapid off ball, as is Robinson. How do you think Spo got everybody to buy in like that? Because that isn't common. I think that it's a byproduct of or not, sorry, it's not a byproduct. It is what Pat Riley looks for in players. It's the Miami Heat, they they say this, they're not for everybody. Heat, hashtag Heat culture isn't for everyone. But the guys that fit in, they really fit in. The guys that buy in will succeed. And so you... If you have a bunch of hardworking guys who believe in their coach's vision, believe in the game plan, have a leader like Goran Dragic, like Jimmy Butler, like Bam Adebayo, if you have your stars, quote-unquote, willing to dive on the floor, willing to do whatever it is the coach is asking them to do, then that generates a level of trust that you know permeates throughout the roster it's so kendrick nunn for instance he's one of those he's a you know he's a rookie who was campaigning for himself to be rookie of the year right and one of the reasons i think that he felt bold like he he felt like he could do that was because he was so empowered by Eric Spolstra and so empowered by the heat and their infrastructure that, you know, he feels like, I mean, I feel as if every NBA guy feels that 
they have the confidence. They're one of the, they are one of the best basketball players in the world. But to say that you are the deserving rookie of the year in a year where you have guys like John Morant and Brandon Clark and Zion Williamson, it takes a certain level of swagger and, you know, belief in how good you are. And I think that Spo's system has them, has every Heat player believing in that. I got to say, I think my favorite decision that Spolstra made this postseason was to just drop none out of the rotation. I, <laughs> I'm a big fan of that decision. <laughs> Even though he had like he had a ton of on-ball actions this year in the regular season, he was hard driving to the rim. He made some catch-and-shoot jumpers. Like, none did his thing. And, you know, be remiss to not point out why he ended up on the heat was because of his, you know, domestic violence. But... As far as none, going from none to Dragic seemed like the obvious decision for Spolstra to make. And that's the great thing about coaches like Spolstra is they make the obvious decision, but it's the tweaks and the sets that I think are where he really shines. Because a lot of coaches won't make the obvious decision. Budenholzer does, does not make obvious decisions. It, it stupefies me, really. Like he, the the type of basketball that the Bucks try to play is a very efficient brand of basketball, but it's not changeable. And Spolstra, he he'll make the decisions. He'll change it up on the fly. He'll go from a starting guard to the bench guard for the duration of the playoffs. And Dragic has turned back the clock as a result. So when we're looking at these players, and Specifically, I want to talk about the matchups with the Celtics then because Spolstra, I think, has hit on two very big things. And that is they've been able to really punish Daniel Tice. The gap between Adebayo and Tice, I think, was much larger than I thought. Obviously, I like Tice a lot, but I like Bam a lot more. What was I missing that I didn't see that Bam was absolutely going to eat his lunch? Spo, honestly, I I believe that it's the positions that Spo puts his guys in that you know you take advantage of the one weak guy on the floor and people hearing that should think well Kemba is the smallest guy on the floor yes but he brings so much offensively that you know you you have to live with what he does defensively and for the most part Kemba has competed defensively and I think that's something that, you know, goes unnoticed because he's small, so you normally look past him. But for Daniel Tice, they've targeted him a lot in actions where I feel like if I were Spo, Tice is the first person I'm trying to get off the floor because there is no, well, before Gordon Hayward came back, I should say. There is no answer on the bench once Tice goes because you're looking at your four guys, right? Tatum, Brown, Walker, Smart. And Grant Williams can come in every now and then, play spot minutes. Brad Wanamaker, spot minutes. Rob Williams was really good in the Raptor series. But, you know, against the... With the know-how of the Heat players, not to say that the Raptors didn't have that know-how, it's just they are they're targeting the weak points every time on the floor. And if you can get Tice out of there, then you are that much better off. So one of the things that one of the reasons Hero got going in Game Four was the Celtics largely largely played drop coverage when Tice was in the game. And so if you drop against Tyler Hero, he has the he has the ability to take that space and score, right? We saw him do it in a number of ways. The off-foot runner off glass was my personal favorite, but his, you know, he's just on balance and he pulls up and bam sets such strong, rugged screens that 
even if you are trying to, you know, I rear view contest is what I've heard. The rear view contest when you're chasing past Tyler, Tyler's release is too quick and he's he's getting it off. And so they've they've targeted and attacked him as often as they can. And you know, on the other end, Bam and his insane ability to switch and defend guards, defend any player on the perimeter about as well as you can defend them is something that Tice doesn't bring. Tice is solid in his role, but, you know, Adebayo is a rising star. I suppose that was probably the thing that surprised me the most is, as you addressed it, the Raptors do have the know-how. It's just Tice. There was some, I guess I would say, discourse on Twitter prior to the series talking about Tice was going to play Gasol even or beat him. And that was coming from Celtics Twitter. And Raptors Twitter was laughing, lauding, saying like, okay, that's obviously not going to happen. Gasol is much better than Daniel Tice. And his body of work is, yes. And if he's the same player he was last postseason, yes. But Gasol was not able to punish anything that Tice did. And so the Celtics were able to load up off of Gasol. Bam is punishing that spot on the Celtics more than I've seen basically any player do it. And I think that's Jimmy Butler is the unquestioned star of the Heat. But Bam's ability to not only take in stride what's coming to him via these different matchups, but to actually find the advantage and hammer it in repeatedly is, I think, very, very rare for a big man because big men are typically seen as finishers. They're, they raise your ceiling. But Bam, his control with the ball, his play recognition, I think has been so advanced that he's able to control the game in some aspects like a guard does, except from the big man position. And I think that's the reason why they've been able to skate through these playoffs is because other big men are not prepared for that type of player. He's truly very special in his application of his talents and skills. I, he's shocked me this postseason. It has been above and beyond. Right, and I think that has a lot to do with growing pains. So, I, as you said, I am a big fan of Spo. I, I love Spo. And one of the reasons I did a video about Bam as a decision maker, as a point center, is that the bringing the ball up the bringing the ball up the floor and flowing into early dribble handoffs is fine but Spo has allowed him to bring the ball up and maybe not go straight into dribble handoffs maybe look to well Bam doesn't look to necessarily attack by putting by putting pressure on the rim when he's bringing up the ball but the way he's able to take to survey the defense and attack the weakest defender on the floor or go full speed dribble handoff to Dragic or Hero or Robinson. It's just, it's a part of... So Spo has basically given him some license to do what he's... what he is doing now except during the season he was making a lot more mistakes and you know like i said you you live with the growing pains throughout the season in preparation for moments like this and so it has all been building to this you saw like you said the easy adjustment spo didn't start bam at center for much of the season but Come bubble time, come playoff time, Bam is the center. And they're not playing, they didn't play Kelly Golinick in, in game four at all. After playing him about 10 minutes a game, the first three games, they are not playing Myers Leonard at all. I think Myers Leonard might have touched the court every now and then in the Buck series, but no consistent minutes. 
they even so I charted this. So they went from the in the first quarter they they subbed Bam and Dragic out together. Um, so Bam sat from six minutes six minutes left in the first to four minutes left in the first, and the Heat played with the lineup of Butler, Hero, Duncan Robinson, Igudala, and Crowder, and they did it again in the second quarter for little over three minutes. And then at the end of the third, with about a minute left in the third, they subbed him out. Solomon Hill came in. Solomon Hill played four minutes. Um, so that was interesting. But Solomon Hill came in, and the Heat played a lineup of Dragic, Hero, Solomon Hill, Igudala, and Crowder. So they're playing very, very small for short stretches, but that has allowed them to keep Bam on the floor for as long as possible. When I think about this team, I think about how different it's become since the bubble started, as you addressed, you know, putting Bam at the five, an obvious decision, putting Dragic back in the starting lineup, an obvious decision. Something that isn't as obvious is to change the hands of playmakers in the middle of the playoffs. And we've seen Hero ratchet up his usage and his assist rate and his assist numbers as the playoffs have gone on. And we've also seen Jimmy Butler's numbers go down a touch. What do you think it was that Spolstra saw that he decided, okay, the ball will be in Hero's hands more often and we're actually going to take it out of Jimmy's hands? Because going from Jimmy Butler to a rookie who's been fantastic, by the way, but to a rookie is not something I think a lot of coaches would do. And how do you think Hero has done, and why has he succeeded with the ball in his hands more often? What does he, what does he have in his bag that makes him so good at this? Confidence, right? So he's, Tyler Hero is one of the most confident players I've seen. He just believes in himself so much. He puts in the work, and he can go out there and one of the reasons I believe that he is having a little more success than say Jimmy Butler, not to say that Jimmy Butler isn't having success, but he's hero is a more dangerous threat on the bam handoffs than Butler is because of his ability to pull from deep. He is, if you're the Celtics, and Jimmy pulls up from three, and he makes it, you can live with, you can talk yourself into living with that. Because, you know, it means that he's not going to the free throw line. If It means he's not putting as much pressure on our defense as he would be if he were turning the corner and going downhill. But what Hero can do is, as I said before, if you were in the drop coverage, he's going to burn you. He's got the mid-range jumper. He can burn you. If you struggle getting around the BAM screen, he's pulling from deep. If you have... If your answer to the question, where are we putting Kemba? Oh, put him on the rookie. That's, that's not going to go... It hasn't gone the Celtics' way. As much as they, as much as on paper it should, because Tyler Hero has enough poise, he has enough patience, and again, enough confidence to size up Kemba Walker and just pull right up over him, or he'll sidestep right around him, or he'll get him, he'll get him off balance and go with those leaners, those runners. He has the ability to score. I wouldn't necessarily say he's a great finisher around the basket, but he he is tricky around the basket. His off-foot finishes, his scoops, he'll throw shot blockers, rotating defenders off by doing those things. So he's he's a three-level scorer. And 
he's not as big of a threat to get to the free throw line, but if he gets there, he's making those free throws. That's a good point is that, you know, confidence can take you a long way, but also it seems like he's not riding a streak. And maybe this is the point you made about with Kendrick Nunn is that he's, he was emboldened and he played a certain level. And I believe it's Harrow hasn't had a game under 10 points this whole postseason. He's just been so consistent. And with the scoring staying the same, they felt like, okay, the ball can be in your hands more often. And then the assists start ratcheting it up. And you look at a game where you're watching it, and it's kind of, he has this Fred Van Vliet type of playmaking to where you think the guy would have like two or three assists and he has eight. And you're like, where the hell did that come from? How did you get eight assists? What have you been doing? And it's just running through the sets, making the right reads in the middle of the game and just finding teammates where they're supposed to be. I think the Heat are very good at creating assists like that. And as are the Raptors, these are teams with great infrastructure that they kind of do that. There'll be guys like, you know, Grievous Vasquez from way back when, when he led the league in assists. And it was like every assist was a big thing because he's on the Pelicans. But teams like the Heat and the Raptors can just by proxy of what they're doing, the read and react aspect of their systems, they're creating assists all the time. And so let's flip it to the other side of the floor and to another team. Boston facing off against this Miami Heat zone. What are the biggest struggles you're seeing? Because Boston typically did an okay job of dancing around the Raptors zone. They found the guys in the corners. They hit their corner three-point shots. They had the guys flash middle every once in a while. And the Raptors did find some success, yes. But why is Miami having so much more success in that way than the Raptors did? So I think one of the key differences that the the Heat zone have to the Raptors zone is that they put their longer wings, their better athletes up top. And so that disrupts a lot of the action. So... Your Jimmy Butler's, Jay Crowder's, Andre Iguodala, Derek Jones Jr. When they are up top, it's hard to get a pass in. It's hard to, it's harder to just say, "Hey, one of you guys, go to the nail, and we'll throw the ball in, and we'll we'll play from there." So, plus, if you have Bam as your as your rim protector, your middle guy, that's a lot more potent than I think one of the more successful Raptors zones was having OG in the middle. And, you know, no knock to OG. I I love him. I know you love him. And he has been playing all NBA level defense. You know, he played the season and I believe it was your point where you said that he's not going to get recognized as an all-NBA defender until he does it for a couple of years. The difference with between Bam and OG is that teams don't necessarily want... To, the Celtics don't necessarily think that they can go at Bam. They, they can't get around him. They're not, as Jason Tatum learned the hard way, they're not going to go over him. And it's hard to go through him. So the Heat hide their guards. Hero, Robinson, Dragic. They have them in the corners. And when you make life difficult up top, it's harder to read what the zone is doing. Sometimes the Heat will throw in... will throw a wretch in, in the Celtics' plans by matching up and it has thrown the Celtics I think one of the biggest things that the break in games three and four did was it allowed the Celtics to really show the Celtics coaching staff to really show their players what they want to be doing against the heat so one of the things that I noticed happen quite a bit was the Celtics will will overload one side, which is what do you do against the zone, right? 
but they'll go into that empty ball screen on one side. And similar to what I talked about earlier with Bam and the one wing and attacking that the the advantage there, the the Celtics have that also. And so being able to overload the one side, go dribble handoff, and you create the advantage there, it it's something the Celtics have started to figure out more and more each game. And, you know, it's the Raptors and Celtics played for seven games. They it was the ultimate chess match. If you are interest if people are interested, they should go to half court hoops. He did an hour long breakdown of the back and forth, the great chess match between Nick Nurse and Brad Stevens. There every little thing there is about their zones, about their presses, about their traps. It's challenging in a different way, I guess, to to be playing the Heat because if you disengage for one second, the Heat are gone and they're going the other way, right? So that's what happened. I believe it was game two where Jimmy Butler came up with two key steals down the stretch. It's just a lazy pass here, an errant pass there, and those athletes up top are picking it off. They're going, they're gone. So they are just, the Heat are the same on both ends. They are relentless. They will just keep coming at you. And their 2-3 zone allows them to hide their guards in the corners, and it's hard to get the ball into the corner, like I said, when you have the kind of ball pressure that they have up top. And so, you know, going forward, I think the Celtics have found some solutions to the Heat zone, but the Heat will obviously be making adjustments to combat what they saw in Game 4 also. That's one of my favorite things about modern NBA defense is the ability of certain teams, there's three or four, that can transition between zone and man defense fluidly in the same possession, and they can do it once or twice, depending on how the possession shakes out. That is so cool to have five guys who understand what shape they're presenting all the time and maintaining the shape and maintaining the tenacity of it and the activity of it like throughout the whole possession and being able to change and go back to it is one of the coolest things about modern NBA basketball, I think. But since we talked about Bam being able to push his advantages, since we know Jimmy Butler has been, I wrote about it in Minute Basketball, his ability to get into the post and take advantage either as a guy who's going to like a short little baby hook over Kemba Walker or a guy who can hit a fadeaway or a guy who recognizes three men are collapsing on him and he can pass out to Hero, to Dragic, whomever, Crowder as well. They've been able to push most of their perceived advantages. I don't know that Boston has really, really done anything to take away what Miami loves to do. Like, I guess, like, Duncan Robinson, he has to hustle some more because Boston is chasing over the top pretty aggressively. That's, like, that's okay. But Miami, for the most part, has been able to get through their sets and do their thing. What is Boston... We're thinking about their perceived advantages coming into this series. What are they missing out on that we thought they should have been winning at? Well, I think the biggest thing is the Heat switch almost everything. And that Heat switchability has led to BAM guarding perimeter guys. But the thing about that is the Celtics are a great isolation team. They have a couple of, well, Kemba is world-class in isolation. I think that the Celtics haven't done as good a job hunting mismatches like they should. Because if you take Bam away from the rim... I'm not saying it's easy to get there, but if you can get there, 
that's probably your best look. Granted, the Heat do outstanding at covering for each other and rotating over, but I just think it's a part of Steven's DNA and the Celtics' DNA that they don't really hunt mismatches like they should. I know Enes Cantor came in, I can't, I believe it was game two. He also played some in game three, but he was posting up against Derek Jones Jr. and Kelly Olenek. And if I'm not mistaken, Duncan Robinson for one post-up. So those are the only hunting mismatch, hunting mismatches and going out of your way to do that that I've seen from Brad. Whereas in the previous series, it's Kemba beating Marcus Gasol around the edge or beating, well, most especially Serge Ibaka around the edge or forcing a switch and then attacking that. It's the Celtics have the weapons to attack in isolation. And that does take away from their beautiful drive, kick, drive, kick, drive, kick game. But I think sometimes you just have to go with what you know can get you a bucket or two here and there just to stop the bleeding because Miami just keeps on coming. And the Celtics, if their three-point shot isn't falling, you have to find a way to manufacture baskets. And Jason Tatum, as a north-south guy, has shown to be ineffective. I don't know if that's necessarily fair because he, if he can get by his guy the Heat are walling up right behind him, and he's not going straight to the rim. He is pulling up for these awkward floaters, runners, leaners, half hooks. They don't look great, and I just don't know if he has confidence in those types of shots. I think he's taking them because they're there, but I don't know if he has any confidence taking those types of shots. I think that's probably, that's the biggest difference between the Heat and the Raptors is I like I phrased it like yes they've had more success their their defense that zone has been more successful than the Raptors zone but they aren't defending a whole lot better than the Raptors were if at all the Raptors played great defense on the Celtics it's just that the Heat have been able to score so efficiently and with regularity against the Celtics on the other end that the Celtics can't be as patient in what they like to do on the other side of the floor. With the Raptors, the Raptors basically, the offense that was happening against the Celtics, it was so, it, it was impotent, like completely. There was no potency to it. So they couldn't ever really pull away in a game. So the Celtics kind of got to go through the motions and figure things out. And then if Marcus Smart wants to hit five triples straight in a fourth quarter, like you're back <laughs> in the game. It's going to be all right. And the Heat have been able to manufacture offense way more consistently so that the Celtics feel that, you know, the itch on the back of the neck when things aren't going well offensively. And when things aren't going well offensively, you tend to force things. And if you can't force things, it just exacerbates the problem, the existing problem that's happening. And I think that's been the biggest key and probably the thing I underrated the most about the Heat coming into these playoffs is I didn't think they'd be able to manufacture offense the way that they have. And man, they've killed it. And they've they haven't dominated the Celtics. The series is tied. I think was it 441 to 441, something like that. They Yes. Yeah, they're tied 441 to 441. It's not a lopsided series by any stretch of the imagination. But the Heat, when they get the game close, they're just comfortable going to what they like. And they have this incredible sense of presence, an incredible presence of mind for what's happening in the game at any given time, led by Bam and led by Jimmy. And obviously the not irrational but somewhat irrational confidence of, my God, Tyler Hero. And Goran Dragic hitting those insane, leave the ball behind your back, step it back, and cash a triple on Tice late in game type plays. They just have so many different people impact in the game so consistently that 
I didn't see it coming, and that's been the whole key to me. I agree. And I think their willingness to to throw things out there, not sure if it will work, has worked for them. I believe I was talking to you about this during Game 7, going into the fourth quarter, where I said, I don't know if Nurse has it in him, but I would consider throwing out a full-court press or something to help wear the Celtics down and eat clock so they have less time to get into their action. And in Game 2, the Heat did that. They threw out a 2-2-1 zone press to help kill clock before going into into their 2-3 zone. And they haven't gone to it since, I don't think, but it helped them take Game 2. And those little things are all you really need. Yeah, especially the Celtics are kind of lazy getting into their sets. And if you if they're starting with like 11, 12 seconds on the clock, that's a huge difference. Because if you have to reset that pick and roll, suddenly it gets really hairy really quick. And you're right, that was that was very affecting for the Heat to pull out. But I feel like we've we've put about 40 minutes, 45 minutes into Heat and Celtics. You want to transition to the West? Absolutely. All right. Let's tee it up. Let's think here. Jamal Murray, Nikola Jokic, uh, Torrey Craig coming in for some fantastic defense, the Jeremy Grant game, and, of course, the unstoppable Anthony Davis and LeBron James duo. What are your thoughts? Just the optics of this series. It's 2-1. The Lakers have a tough decision ahead. Do they go up 3-1 against the Nuggets? A certainly the death stroke of the series or do they let them tie it up 2-2 so that they can go on to win what are your thoughts going forward too dangerous too too dangerous to go up 3-1 LeBron he knows what it's like being down 3-1 he knows what that can do he doesn't want to lose 3-1 I think they I think they have to give this game away (laughs) yeah okay so if you're the Lakers and you want to give a game away what are you looking to allow the Nuggets to do? What have the Nuggets found success in, and you want them to keep doing that? I think it's a little strange that game two, or sorry, no, game three, game three, game three went the way it did for the Nuggets because the Lakers got double the amount of points in the paint than the Nuggets. And the Nuggets didn't shoot that well from three. So, you know, if you're, if you're the Lakers, you're kind of sitting there scratching your head wondering what exactly, what exactly did we do wrong? So I've in, so Minute Basketball, I read your piece, the, the thing about ESPN people saying that it's, the Lakers haven't taken them seriously. I don't think that's, I don't think that's the case. I think some teams they don't have it in them to stay locked in for the full 48 and it's a hard thing to ask to 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 not make any or to make the least amount of mental mistakes as possible over the course of a game that's that's a really hard thing to ask and i i know based on experience i i don't coach any 48 minute games but for the time that we do have it's a it's a tough ask. They're not necessarily doing anything wrong. It's just what they have done to the Mills or sorry, not the Millsap. What they have done with the Murray Jokic tandem is they've presented a bunch of different things and it's not really a matter of what they're doing wrong. It's a matter of Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic are really, really smart. They figure stuff out. They go from maybe this will shut us down for a game, maybe half a game, to we've fully figured this out. We can take advantage of this. We can manipulate you how we want to manipulate you. Again, minute basketball talked about Jamal Murray and his jumping in the air to make a pass. One of the things I have marveled at this series and throughout these playoffs is Jamal Murray 
getting up in the air to make a pass, looking one way and then throwing it another way. He has gotten very good at manipulating the defense, shifting them over with his eyes, with his body, with the way the ball is leaning, and then going across his body to throw it to a wide-open player. I think that it's not really about what the Lakers have done wrong. It's about the Nuggets are just figuring things out. And guys like Paul Millsap and Jeremy Grant, they are having great series so far, especially defensively. But when you can contribute what they have contributed to Game 2 and Game 3 offensively, the Nuggets are a hard team to beat. I think you make the exact point that I, when I look at this series, Nikola Jokic, Jamal Murray, not only are they smart and really good, like it's this insanely fast and high-paced decision-making, and they can it's problem-solving at the highest level in basketball, and they do it quick. And to see that coupled with insane shot making. And that's basically it is Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic. Has there been two better shot makers in the playoffs? I know everybody is saying Anthony Davis is having the best big man run since whenever because that's that's the optics of it because he killed Houston. I thought his, his series against Houston was more impressive because of the defense and there were a lot of baskets he was supposed to score against Houston. He was supposed to do that. But when you look at strictly the absolutely gobsmacking shot making that we see from Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic, it's insane, quite frankly. Jokic with those bastardized Dirk fadeaways that nobody will ever block. Nobody's ever going to touch it. Jamal Murray with that against Caruso in game three, that half spin, turn back, like snatch back and then hit a three when they're only up three and there's like three minutes left in the game. And he's also making plays like the one that Lewis highlighted in Minute Basketball where he he hangs and Millsap finds that room and he finds Millsap and the layup goes in. And then you think about just that Steph Curry-esque pull-up game that he hit that massive 27-foot bomb against Anthony Davis. And this isn't something that's just late in games, it's so important to counterpunch in the NBA because it is a game of runs and you have to start yours as soon as the other team finishes theirs or better yet, start yours in the middle of the other teams. And Jamal Murray's ability to just come out and make these hard stop, stride stop, let's say, I know you like that term now, these stride (laughs) stop pivots in the lane and then just rise up and his body is square his shoulders are square and he's hitting those little two-pointers that just stop the bleeding it's kind of crazy because LeBron is the best player on the floor naturally he's he's incredible he's a world-ending star but he does not have the shot making capability that Jamal Murray does few players do and if Jamal Murray is going to be on this 50 50 90 heater for months, the Nuggets' ceiling starts to look incredibly high, especially when you consider that he gets to bounce that type of shot-making off of the creativity and the offensive hub that Nikola Jokic is. Because Jokic has had more, he's had more possessions, he's had more touches than anybody else in the league. The Nuggets like to run things through him because if they create an advantage, no matter how small, he'll find it and they'll be back-cutting for a layup or they'll have room to step outside and hit a triple, something like that. And I like that you you know, you know, just concede the fact that it's not about what the Lakers are doing or not doing. It's just that Jokic and Murray, at times, cannot be solved because they are the solvers. They're figuring the things out, and they've had, they've had a counterpunch to everything that's been thrown their way. They fascinate me. It's been incredible basketball to watch. Absolutely. So much fun. And... If I'm going to give credit to Brad Stevens and Eric Spolstra, Michael Malone, he does a great job at having them in sets, in positions where they can really take advantage. So 
something I noticed in game three was the Nuggets are challenging the Lakers' defensive decision-making. Are they going to switch on pin-downs and things like that? So what they have done more of is they'll set they'll have Jokic receive pin downs right and let him use his spectacular basketball IQ to go from there one specific one that pops to mind is in the second quarter Jokic gets a he gets a screen from a wing, I can't remember if it's Tory Craig or, or Gary Harris, but Rondo is on the wing. Dwight is on Jokic. Jokic receives that screen. They have to... They have to... Well, Rondo sh- shoots out to the wing to deny the pass from up top to going to Jokic. And Dwight kind of just stays there. He has his arm on the wing let's just say Gary Harris for right now if I'm wrong about it I'm wrong about it it's fine he has his arm on Gary Harris in the paint and Rondo is screaming for Dwight to get back Uh, Gary uh, Gary Harris can't linger in the paint because Anthony Davis is on the prowl in there I believe and so it forces these it, it forces panic I I don't want to say that the Lakers are panicking necessarily the entire game, but there are these moments where they just put you in these positions where are we switching, are we not? If we're not switching, Jokic is shooting over Rondo. Or, sorry, if we, if we are switching, Jokic is shooting over Rondo. If we're not switching, Jokic is getting an easy pass and either shooting a mid-range jumper or he's hitting again I can't remember but Gary Harris on the back cut it just they put you in these positions where you have to be perfectly in line and have an understanding of what you you and your teammate are going to do in that situation because the momentary pause, a slight misunderstanding, it's over. They've scored. It's the litmus test. It's that Jokic continuously proves that there isn't a big man who can handle him one-on-one in the post. So you die by Jokic or you die by the results of people doubling Jokic or bringing extra attention to Jokic. And then on top of that, Michael Malone and the Nuggets decided they'd build a roster of rapidly cutting wings and guards who could recognize how to play off of that type of big. And it's not just because of Jokic. I mean, this is something that has been coached and taught. Look at Malik Beasley after he left the Nuggets and went to the Timberwolves. He was fantastic. And because he knew how to play off of Cat. And Cat really liked to be able to recognize Malik playing off of him. It was they had they were very symbiotic in that way. And it's because of Malik's time in Denver. It's not just that Jokic allows players to be this way. It's just that Denver has what would the term be? They've created this environment where these players can actually learn that type of basketball and they apply it all the time to what's going on on the floor. Like a guy like Tory Craig, when he comes into the league, he wants to defend. And yes, he had that goof up against the uh, the Jazz in Game 7 where he missed the layup. But as far as a guy being able to dip and duck into the paint, find space, they've done such a good job of teaching all their players how to operate in that space. And also with Mason Plumley as well. Just looking how this team has curated and crafted their roster and seeing it pay off has been one of the most enriching aspects of this postseason, I think. Right, yes. And look at... P.J. Dozier. Who would have thought P.J. Dozier would have had a moment, a big moment, in Game 2 of a tightly contested Western Conference Finals? That's These guys are in the positions they are in 
because the Nuggets front office looks for these guys because the Nuggets coaching staff has built this, like you said, this great environment where they're reading off of, they're learning how to play with Jokic. They are attacking space and attacking gaps. And he is just, and Jokic is so good. And Mason Plumley, Paul Millsap, not bad. And Jeremy Grant is growing as a passer. He's not quite to their level. And I mean, nobody is on Jokic's level. But they are great at recognizing Cutter's absorbing space and attacking gaps. And they hit them on the catch, and that forces rotations. So every everything about what this Denver team is and has done is really impressive to me. Yeah. Are they uh, are they the team you want to win most, or is the Spolstra connection driving you forward for that? I'm not sure. I I think that a Heat Nuggets finals would be mind blowing. I think it would be fantastic. I think there are really three or four, only three or four guys in the league that can really guard Jokic in the sense that they can stunt and then stunt a driver and then be able to close out at him with enough speed to chase him off the line while also being under control and not get bullied on post-ups and not get eaten alive um, just about everywhere else on the court offensively because Jokic dictates the terms. So I think there are only three or four guys. One of them won Defensive Player of the Year. The other one is Anthony Davis. And if I if I had to put my money on it, I would say that Bam would Bam would be one of those guys also. So to see a Nuggets Heat final would just be, you know, my I I would I would lose my mind. I don't know who I'd root for in that situation. I love. I love basketball, so I'm rooting for it to go seven, but it's it would just be fun. I really like that potential matchup between Bam and Jokic because Bam had the most difficulty this postseason with Brooke Lopez. And because Lopez is a mammoth, he's a huge human being, and Bam is still technically a little undersized for center. He's strong as an ox and he's like cut from marble he's extremely physical but there still is that size aspect and i'd love to see if bam could play so far above his weight to try and hang with Jokic. i and then also to have those rapid reaching trying to swat away like the digs that would come from guys like iggy or jimmy butler that would try and get after Jokic if he's spinning into you know, a trap or anything like that. And just seeing how that super active Miami Heat defense tracks all the guys on the Nuggets off ball and vice versa. So, yeah, I just, wow, that would be such a fun matchup. But Evan, I, it's been about an hour. Are you ready to get out of here? I am. I have to be honest, though. So the I I tried to play that off. Like, I, I, I might, I, I do want, if that series does happen, I do want it to go as long as possible because I want as much basketball as possible, selfishly. But I have so many Chicago connections. I have Jimmy Butler, honestly, is my brother's favorite player and has been for since he first came into the league, I think. I think my brother just identified with his with Jimmy and his his work rate and his love of making winning plays. So I th- I think ultimately I, I would root for the Heat in this situation. But yes, I am ready to get out of here. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. That, that makes sense. That's interesting. We've we've got a definitive answer from basketball fan and coach Evan Gualberto. He's, he's pulling for the Heat. 
this will be aggregated. I'm sure Zach Lowe and co will be commenting on it later. And uh, yeah, expect some drama from the Nuggets camp towards you, Evan. I'm sorry, but this is this is what it's like in sports media for people as popular as you. <laughs> I'm willing to take the hit. Spo is Spo is my guy. I love Spo. Okay, perfect. Well, before we get out of here, is there any? I know you've put some new videos up on your channel. Are there any you'd like to direct the listeners towards? Not necessarily. I just, I think I would like a little more feedback as to, so I've started branching out to player-specific sets. And it, in the beginning, or in the past, I have done team ball movement. And so that kind of came and went when the league became sort of homogenous in their their shot their the shot profile and things like that. So if you are listening to this and you want to let me know what specifically you what type of videos you specifically learn the most from, then I will try to make more of those. I know that my videos have helped a bunch of players because that's how I intended for them to be you, they're intended to be used for film study. They are broken down. They're broken up by moves. Lately, I've been putting more highlights in the beginning to draw more people in, and then it's broken down by moves or it's broken down by areas and things like that. But please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or on the YouTube community page, which yeah, I don't really quite know how to use yet, but I'm learning how to use it. If there are specific videos that you feel will help you as a player, please feel free to reach out to me and let me know this is what I'm trying to do. This is what I'm looking for. This is what helps. I'll give you some feedback right now. The more specific it is, the more, the harder it will be for it to go viral. Like you'll have a clip that will end up at like 600,000 views or something like that but it'll probably be appreciated by a larger community. You know what I mean? You're more likely to increase people who are fans of you, the curator. Like, oh yeah, I really like Evan Colberto's videos because he's so specific in this way. But also I think you're probably leaving views on the table that way. So it's a give and take, I'd assume, because you can just cut highlights and stuff like that and get more views. But I don't think that would create people who are really dependent or really looking for highlights from you. They're just like looking for highlights. But I think what makes your channel special and the whole reason why I found your channel was because of the specificity and the intelligence and insight into what you are seeing. So that I don't know if that helps. And I don't know why I'm doing this live on air. But <laughs> <laughs> well, well, I really appreciate that. I do. I, I really I, I will take that to heart. And I understand that I'm leaving views on the table by not just making outright highlights. I have spoken to a bunch of people in the YouTube comment section, which a lot of people have, have advised me against talking to people in my YouTube comments. But I feel like as somebody who makes the videos and makes the videos with a specific purpose in mind, it's important to try and parse through a lot of what is being said and to talk to the people who want to give me actual feedback. So I know I'm leaving views on the table. I'm, I feel like I would be good at just making outright highlights, ESPN style and things like that, but I don't want to do that. I do sometimes make more highlight type videos just because it's a, I feel like it would be a fun project for me to work on as a good change of pace to well, I've hammered home this very, very specific thing, and I've gone through 82 games of, well, okay, not, maybe not 82, 70-something games of a really bad team, and however many minutes of this one player who can only do one thing really well, but, you know, I understand that there are, there are the people who like my stuff really like my stuff and the people who are looking for highlights you might come to my channel and enjoy it but if it's not what you're looking for if it's not your cup of tea i understand and i can live with that 
Do you have any coaching advice if there's any coaches listening to the podcast? Watch more film. There's never enough. Don't don't tune out or close yourself off to anything, really. There have been times where I have been watching. I'll just be scanning through and I'll come across some EuroLeague or not, maybe not even EuroLeague, maybe minor league basketball highlights and I'll see a set or I'll see a player do a specific thing. And I think, oh, maybe there's, I can, maybe that's something I can teach or can I reverse engineer that to be something that my players can learn to do? So, you know, the, what I would say is don't close yourself off to everything that's out there and everything that's available for you. That's some wisdom right there from Evan Gualberto. Evan, thank you very much for coming on, man. It's always my pleasure. Okay. And listener, that's it for you. It's it for me. That's it for Evan. Whether you're getting into it in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye.